My name is Gabrielle Licht. I work at Maesrich. I'm a leasing manager, and I absolutely love the physical experience of retail where you can feel the brand with all of your senses. From New York City, you're listening to Retail is Your Business, covering the intersection of innovation and business in the retail industry. So welcome to the show, Gabrielle. So nice to have you and see you. I'm going to dive right into the deep end of the pond, as we say on the show very frequently. So tell us about you're on the leasing side of the business, but I feel like you're on a very special part of leasing um, for Mace Rich. Tell us about Brandbox. Absolutely. I think that what's so unique about my role is that I really work with brands from their first store, which um, we created something called Brandbox, which is an incubator for brands. It originally started as a physical space at Tyson's Corner Center where brands could easily pop up in a space that already has a fixture system. It has retail tracking and it is just really easy for brands to open a store with very minimal lift. And from that, we actually have expanded the concept of Brown Box across the portfolio into other vacant spaces, identifying spaces that were in good condition that we could white box and give to young brands and make it really easy for them to open a pop-up or a short-term space. And I know you have been involved in this, I think, since it really kicked off. Talk to us a little bit. I mean, I think it's probably very natural on, you know, why this came about and maybe talk to us about, you know, some of the brands that you've had in um, and how the program has evolved. Sure. I've been involved since November of 2018, really before then when we really conceptualized the whole idea. And it's been amazing to watch how the brands have changed. I think that originally we really weren't sure if we were going to going to limit it really to only young digitally native brands. So we started with our first set of brands actually included DKNY, which as you know, is a public company and definitely not new to retail at all, but they wanted to try a new concept. So we looked at Brandbox as a place that brands like DKNY, or we also launched Hollister's Gilly Hicks in their own location. While they originally were locating all Gilly Hicks inside of the stores, they wanted to see what happened when they located outside of the stores. And what they actually found in that was that their customer base when they were outside of the Hollister store was actually on an older side than their Hollister stores, because I believe that Hollister really is for a younger age group and and demographic. And Gilly Hicks could really be for any demographic, any age. They had a lot of really comfortable pajamas. So I think that Brandbox has really evolved. I've enjoyed watching young brands like Nottam Cashmere on one of their first locations, Interior Define as one of their first locations. We have a new brand that's currently in the space called Taylor on Tap, which is a men's tailored made company. And I've just enjoyed watching all these brands as they kind of navigate how to open a store, what checklist they need to go through to open a store, what key features they need to have in their store. And one thing that Brandbox has allowed them to do is if they needed to make their space bigger or smaller or re-merchandise, it was really easy for them to do that. Beyond that, I think now we're finally having really, really great conversations from our November 2018 tenants to go permanent and step up to real market rent. And the leases aren't signed yet, so I can't announce who it is, but it's very exciting for us to watch them take that next graduation step. 
And when the conversations were first starting out, and again, you know, I've been on the developer side, but without giving away any trade secrets, <laughs> what were the conversations? And, you know, I think, again, every developer has been incentivized to what is the new blood of retail and, and how do we get them in the property? You know, was it that? Was it, you know, something else? Because I think there are probably lots of cross conversations going around because it's not always about just collecting rent here. No, it's definitely not. And I have to say, I think that while a lot of other landlords and developers believe that they need to bring in new brands just to stay relevant, this really started as more of, I fear to say, passion project. Our CEO at the time, Art Coppola, was really passionate about these young brands. He loved talking to new founders. He loved hearing the disruption in all these different markets. And he was just passionate about it. So I think it started as a passion project. And then it evolved into this, wow, these brands bring new customers to our center. They also bring new ideas to the way that we retail. I think we're so used to retailing and leasing in a certain capacity that these new brands kind of opened our eyes to what we could change, and especially the experiential model. I think that, you know, stores were always just a place to shop. And I remember when I was younger, I'd be dropped off at malls and say, spend the next hour here. It's great. And you go from store to store buying whatever you could with the $20 that your parents gave you. But now you don't need to even spend the $20 to have that experience with these brands. And it really creates this relationship with the brands. And it creates a relationship even with the shopping center where you feel all of a sudden you feel connected. You feel that they understand your wants and needs and you feel like you're a part of something bigger and everyone wants to be a part of something bigger. So in a shopping center, if we can do that through the brands that we choose to put into our center and associate with, it's only going to make our brand better, but also their brands better. Have you started to request that tenants look into experiences or are you more selecting tenants that have that background? How are you training and reinvigorating some of the spaces that might have a legacy tenant inside of it. It's interesting because I would love to say that we could take credit, but I think that brands already just feel that they need to bring in more experience. And we don't need to go as far as saying that it needs to be a color factory or a museum of ice cream. Those are great experiences, but those are experiential concepts. I think that there's still something to be said, especially after COVID. There's still something to be said about having amazing salespeople And getting to go into a store and experience what the brand really means. Rebecca, I actually remember the first time I walked into a Nottam store was in New York City. And I actually got to walk through the process of where they got their cashmere from. And it's something that I never knew before. And I loved that I was being taught about the foundation of a brand, not just that the product costs $200. And it sells itself, which I think is interesting. I don't know if you're the the kind of shopper that I am. It's then, and I don't want to say it's bragging rights, but it really does go back to that kind of belonging that, you know, then we could be at cocktail hour five hours later and you'd say, hey, you know, bought this cool sweater today and you're give you know, you're re-educating on where the cashmere came from, or at least that's how it kind of has played out in my life as a gold medalist shopper. Definitely. And I mean, we can go back to even legacy retailers like Sephora, right? All of their salespeople are so knowledgeable. You go in there and you say, I need a new foundation or lip gloss or whatever. They bring you around. They spend time with you. They talk through it. That type of retailing just kind of got lost in this big department store. Like, 
how can I help you to sell you instead of how can I help you get what you want and feel good about it, right? So now there's just so many options out there that you want to feel good about where you're spending your money and what you're spending it on. And I think that what these new young brands are doing, they make you feel like you're a part of them. Even when you see that there are influencers posting on them, and then you see all these younger kids that are posting that aren't even influencers, there's like this whole community. I love it. I love that these brands build communities. I love that you feel good about what you're buying. They're thoughtful in everything they do. It's so funny. I've been thinking about this as well, and it's so cliche, but I was like, is everything that's old new again? Because it kind of is going back to that true storekeeper kind of thing, which sounds so old fashioned. But if you really just put your shingle up and open the door, people came and shopped and they knew you and you you were local. But I think, you know, even these D2C brands, people kind of feel that way as well. And like the frontline employee is so important. On that really quick, do you think there's a shift in who is being hired as the frontline employee and how it's being thought about? Or is it more just like on the training side? I think you might be in an interesting position to have an opinion on that without having like a a dogma on it. My opinion is, well, this goes into like even bigger conversations, but I think that education has become such a big thing. So all these people are going for college degrees. So hiring in retail is becoming significantly harder. And what I've heard a lot of these younger brands doing actually, and Rebecca, you could test to this if you know anything about it, but they actually don't hire just for the store. They hire as a corporate that works in the store, which therefore makes you feel like you're a part of the corporation, but you work in the store. And I think that's really nice because a lot of times any retail employee was paid hourly. They weren't given the same benefits as a corporate employee. And they weren't given the same type of, honestly, respect as a corporate employee. Corporate employees back in the day, or even honestly, even last year or the year before that, like were looked at as someone that you had to answer to versus, you know, a retail employee was like, oh, corporate's calling and they'd get nervous. But now these young companies are creating their salespeople are part of the corporation. So there really is no more divide, which makes them feel that they are in it just as much. And it's not just because they're getting paid on each sale which I think is also something that's been changing. But I really think that there is something to be said about how they should change the hiring structure. It's really hard to just hire an hourly employee. I had not heard that. And it's amazing, by the way. We had a gentleman on who wrote a book called Retail Pride about, you know, having pride as a retail worker and being on the front lines. And I do feel like there was a real shift. I hadn't noticed it in some of these DTCs, but you know, Walmart just came out and said that they pay for folks college education, like everything for books to tuition. And if you've been to college and you didn't have a ton of money, and most college students don't, even if their parents have a ton of money, you're on a pretty tight budget. I love that idea. And I agree. I think that when you're at a property, you do notice what stores are really thriving and which ones aren't. And then the the job of somebody leasing or working at any property, I think has also changed tremendously. And we like this brand a lot, and we want them to do well, what are the problems? And there's this real crossover also from the leasing side on how do I help these brands resolve some of these things, even if it's not in a developer's wheelhouse. And so I think kind of who is working in the store and running it, if you're at a property every day, or even if you're at a property every so often, really is important. So I'm hearing about the change and I'm loving the change. Obviously, I work at a company called Leap where we're applying some of these things. But yes, I feel like that line 
line has been crossed, which is great between corporate and retail and should continue to be crossed. And also just what is the role of a salesperson? I didn't post this on LinkedIn. It was a little too harsh for my style and maybe I should have, but about a worker who was interviewed and that, you know, she was asked to be so many different things during the pandemic. So your nurse, your social worker, your guidance counselor, and then you're also helping somebody buy something. And that for years, it has not really been a great job and has had a a short runway. When I first started in real estate, I think there was 100% turnover because it was hiring that hourly worker. So hopefully props to retail, which is such a complicated beast that that's, you know, hopefully turning the corner. Speaking of retail being such a complicated beast. I'm curious in brand box and it has evolved like it's not just, you know, these certain spaces, it's now earmarked spaces on that crossover that we just talked about from developer to retailer. And I think kind of it goes down to like the best laid plans is that this will be really plug and play. What have some of the challenges been? And then what have some of the successes been? And I think we heard about some of the successes, which is people are signing leases and coming to market rent. So it goes back to the conversation that you were saying where a leasing agent, especially in my role, is no longer just a leasing agent, right? The hardest part is that we're still business at the end of the day and we still have partners and we still have budgets to hit. So even if we really like a brand, if it can't fit into how we budgeted and what our partners would approve, it's still really hard to get over those hurdles. And that's because at the end of the day, we are a business. But that being said, I think that we really try to wear as many hats as possible. In my particular role, I actually, when I speak to a brand, I tell them from the get-go, I am more of a consultant than just a leasing agent. I can tell you that I want you to be in all of our centers, but I know at the end of the day, it's better if I talk to you about your rollout strategy and plan. And even if it means that my center is your third store that you're going to open, It's better if I'm upfront and honest and I talk through your strategies rather than just push the way that leasing used to be. And I think that, sure, it does take more time. And I've been doing this for now four years. So I've been investing in these relationships and it's been amazing to watch brands that said absolutely no shopping centers ever, ever, ever. And they're all going to sign leases. I just got a call from a brand that we were supposed to do a pop-up with and I was super excited about it and COVID hit. And they told me, you know what, now that COVID happened, we won't do a mall ever again. And I just got a call from them and they said, you know, we want to come back. And I was so excited to hear that because I think that shopping centers got a bad rap, but during COVID, we really did handle ourselves very well. We made sure that our customers were comfortable, that our tenants were okay, and that we did everything that we could to help them survive. And also just kept in touch throughout all of COVID. So back to that consultant concept, I actually spent my first few months of COVID, I remember it was really the end of March, April, and May. And I made a list of around 200 brands with their CEOs, CMOs, or whomever I'd spoken to in the past. And I reached out to them. And I said, not looking to do a deal. I understand that all deals are on hold. But I wanted to reach out to you. I wanted to share anything I'm hearing in the field and pick your brain about what you're seeing and if there's anything I can do to help. And that was a genuine outreach and it had nothing to do with deals. And that's where my role is so different and 
Bram box is so different because it's not happening because they want to pay a large rent and they want to be at the center. A lot of brand box deals are because we believe the brand will do well there. And we tell them like, look, we believe in you and we're willing to take a gamble, pop up here and let us prove it to you. It's so interesting. I'm hearing also brokers and brokerage changing and, and they really are kind of acting like advisors in many ways too, to brands. But um, one of the things I've done business with Mace Rich is you do have partners and trying to get over sometimes the biggest hurdle is really how much a brand can afford. And it's not necessarily new thinking, but Gabrielle, I'd love to hear about some of your problem solving around that. And again, you and I have kind of already real life role played. And again, the the audience of this show is like C-suite. So, you know, it's not like we have to dumb it down for them, but maybe talk just about how creative you've been in the deal making. Because I think that is really important. And if you're a D2C brand, you may already be thinking about being creative, but you may not even have somebody who knows retail real estate. So you don't really, you don't even know where you're starting the conversation. Absolutely. We've been really creative. We have figured out ways to limit risk on both sides, whether that be from having short terms to termination rights to sales kickouts. I think that my favorite deal structure for a young D2C brand is really a base rent with a percentage of rent based on a cost occupancy. So For example, we would give a base rent that would cover maybe taxes and CAM or just taxes, depending on the market. And then we would have a percentage rent of, let's say, 10 to 12 percent or even 15 percent, depending what the brand is comfortable being at. Some brands have smaller margins. Giving 15 percent of their sales is too much, but some brands have larger margins and they can do 15 percent. The 15 percent would keep them at 15 percent cost occupancy, even if they exceed any sales that they projected. But everyone wins if they exceed. Agreed. And, you know, from my end of it, which is really kind of more more tenant-wise, there's been a lot of learnings as well, which is, you know, is percentage of rent always perfect? It's, it's not for whatever reason. And what it seems like is that it takes out the risk or the it lowers the risk because you're not putting dollars on the table necessarily, but, but you really are in the end. So it is interesting. It's, you know, on my side, it's almost brand by brand in many ways, or what is right for my organization. So yes, and I feel like, you know, the pandemic has certainly, I think those conversations were always around, but Gabrielle, I'll say to you, you know, have they increased in the creative deal making coming out of the pandemic? It's a complex question because creative deal structures, we thought that we would have so much vacancy after COVID. We thought that there was going to be a ton of bankruptcies. We thought there were going to be a ton of retail that was rejected in bankruptcy court. And we thought that the vacancy rates were just going to go skyrocketing. So back in the early months of COVID, we thought that we should do any deal that we could do especially if there was upside, if a brand was doing well, because we truly did believe that COVID couldn't last more than a year. We were then proven wrong, right? But I think we've all learned how to live with it. And in living with COVID and the vaccines, we actually watched as tenant after tenant went bankrupt and the leases weren't rejected. We backleased all those spaces and were then left to find new spaces for those tenants because the leases weren't rejected. So I think that in some top markets that were hit the hardest by COVID, there has been a lot of 
opportunities and especially creative one-year deals or creative in the first or second year and then stepping up to an FMR in the third year. But I think we've really been perplexed by the fact that we don't have as many vacancies. We don't have that much room to be creative because of the lack of vacancies. There's been like a mad dash for retail this year, and I am so excited about it. It's amazing. I think we've been busier than we've ever been. I think we've actually, during our earnings call, we talked about the fact that we've surpassed years before leasing activity. It's amazing. I don't know if you can answer this, but it's interesting to watch the collapse of the office space market at the same time as you're watching the rise of the retail space market. And do you think there's going to be any repurposing of spaces and more like micro shops and shops inside of office buildings and things like that happening? And that could be a New York problem. <laughs> so I'm not an office broker, of course, but, and I don't really have as much connection to it as I used to when I was an intern back in the day. But I will say that I think that it's temporary. I don't think that people are going to be working from home and remotely forever. And I think what you're going to find is that all these companies are giving up their office space or downsizing. And they're going to find in a few years that they need to right size, that they need to move, that they need to grow. I think it will be a, a big boom again, because I think that there is still that bump into effect. There's still an importance of being in an office. I mean, I feel it every day. There's so many distractions at home. There's no way that people can work as well at home, except for, I guess, people like me, like I don't have kids at home with me. That being said, I think that you're going to see a lot more, and we're already seeing medical and medtail taking space in office spaces. I think you're going to see more co-working spaces pop up because People have learned how to work remotely or work from different cities, but maybe brands will be taking or companies will be taking space in co-working space. So if their employee is going to be in San Francisco next week, but they're usually based in New York, they should be able to have a hot desk in San Francisco. I think that you'll start seeing a lot more of those co-working spaces be used, but you're also going to see Medtail enter into the office space because that is their customer and tenant. I mean, and um, that's really their customer. Their customer is at their offices. They need a quick and easy, like if you think about a lot of these teeth aligners, like uh, there's Smile Direct Club, Candid, there's now Tend. All of these are locating in co-working space. They are taking spaces in office districts. If you look at where Smile Direct Club is in the city, it's like they're meant to be easy for an employee to go and get whatever they need. So I think that will be really interesting. Even like Forward Health in New York City, again, smack dab in the office district. So I think that you'll see a lot of medical. I don't know if you'll see a lot of like retail shops in office spaces. I just don't think that there's enough foot traffic, but I think that you'll find destination retail in office spaces. Leasing to me, and maybe I'm not the right personality, is one of the hardest jobs in the world, even if you have a ton of fun and the canvassing and the discovering new brands. And somebody very high up at Mace Rich, who you know, gave me a nice spiel one day about, you know, how great the portfolio is and it's all true and that it's not enormous. And that so there are a lot of jewels in the crown. 
And it's totally true. But, you know, in every portfolio, there are pieces of property or developments that are more challenging than certainly the crown jewels. And I mean, this is honestly for anyone who's listening, who's in sales of any kind. How do you get over some of those challenges? Maybe not even bringing direct to consumer brands there, but in just general leasing, getting over some of those pain points and getting folks to go to those properties. And again, there are not very many, if any, in the May search portfolio, so it might not be fair, but. No, I mean, there's definitely centers that are in, you know, New York, LA, Arizona, there's still centers that we have throughout the U.S. that maybe brands, especially digitally native brands, aren't don't have on their top of the list. But I've watched some really, really intelligent people at Maserich, and I, I love watching what they do to lease. And what I found is the most successful ones are the ones that go to the property manager and they say, what do you think the customers that shop here need? And they can educate themselves on what the customers want and need and go out there and get them. So for example, let's just use, I'm not gonna use the center, I'm just gonna say it's a center, right? And there's only fast food and the customers really want something healthy. And originally going to a sweet green or to just salad or any salad place, they would say, no, that market, they don't really want my salads. They're not the right demographic. I don't think that we'll do well there. Our leasing people, because they have all that information from the customers, can then say, no, actually, we've asked so many of our customers who they want here, and they keep saying you. And I think that those types of conversations are what brings the right tenants into the right centers. And no, it's not always going to be the coolest tenants, right? They might say, we want a dentist on site. We come here and I want to be able to go to the dentist. Therefore, you should go find a dentist. Or we come here and we really need a grocery store. Well, a grocery store takes up a lot of square footage. It's great. We just never knew that they wanted a grocery store there. I think that it's all those conversations that you have to have with your customers to be able to lease the center for the customers and keep them coming back. On the other side, we also have to get creative. And how do we bring in the customers? Bringing in experience, bringing in restaurants, bringing great retailers. That's what's going to make us successful. And then at the end of the day, being able to say, hey, this property would probably be a great site for us to put up apartments or for us to put a hotel or for us to use it for something else. And we can't be afraid to change our status quo. And I don't think that Maysearch ever has been. We've always been evolving. We've always been on the cutting edge. And that's why we have so many crown jewels, right? Because we're not afraid to change our centers to what the customers want. I, I love that. And by the way, I'm reading more and more. And again, sometimes I'm like, I enjoy this. Uh, it's not necessarily something that needs to be posted. But um, I just heard about, and it's not the first one, an aquarium going into a property, um, which seems, you know, both educational and experiential. I have someone over at another developer and times are hard. She's probably one of the most creative people I know. And she said, I'm bringing a library to the property. And we kind of chuckled because we were like, where are we going? What is what is happening in this world? But it's so fascinating. And yes, I mean, it's it's kind of nice to hear, give the people what they want. I think I sometimes am asking the wrong question where I'm like, well, what what's your gap analysis? Like, what do you need at the property? Not knowing if they've asked the question, what do the consumers who really come to the property want? Have you taken a look at StoryDot yet? Every brand and every product has a story to tell. And you can't successfully sell that brand or product without telling the story. 
StoryDot delivers your story wherever you want it to be heard. You can meet your customers at each point in their journey, connecting the dots between your business and the consumer to enhance engagement, experience, and conversion. I encourage you to take a look at StoryDot at StoryDot.com. That's S-T-O-R-I-D-O-T.com. Well, it's time we do a segment in the show on getting to know you as a human being. Um, and I probably know you too well, so this isn't going to be that fun. So, Rob, I don't know if you have a question since you're farther removed. Yeah, I love to hear where people come from, from like education and childhood. And so I'd love to hear what kind of brought you to this place. Is there something that you can look back on in high school where you're like, oh, this is something I'd want to do? And if you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. I grew up going to a Quaker school. And at that point, I was convinced that I probably was going to be a teacher or be something in childhood development. And I worked as a camp counselor. So I was sure I was going to work with kids. And on my second summer out of college, I was in the elevator with a family friend. And he mentioned, you know, we're starting this new internship program. We want some really smart people. I think that you should come do it. At that point, I was like, what do you even do? I have no idea what you do. And he told me he was an office broker. And like, okay, like I was like, all right, maybe I have to build my resume. Maybe. I guess I'll do it. I was going to go take some classes, but sure. Like, this sounds great. So I went to be an intern in real estate as an office broker. And it was, I mean, once you enter real estate, I feel like it kind of just like ropes you in. And like you try to leave and you just can't. So I started as an office broker and you would work with like lawyer after all these different like hedge funds and lawyers and companies. And I was like, I don't even know these names. This isn't that exciting. I mean, it was really cool. I got to learn so much. The internship program was actually amazing and we canvassed all of New York City. So I learned so much. But on my second year of my internship, I actually asked if I can go dabble with a really great team that did retail brokerage. And when they were talking about all these brands that I had grown up around, I said, I just got to work here. Like, I, I have to work with all these brands. It is so cool. So then I got a job at Cushman Wakefield, and I was working with Elf Cosmetics on their rollout. And I did the rollout for all their stores, and I worked with someone at Maysearch to do their store at Queen's Center. After a year of working in brokerage, I said, hmm. I love food so much. I want to be in the food industry. I'm going to go work at Uber Eats. That's really not the food industry. It's really the sales industry, which is exactly what real estate is, sales. But I went to Uber Eats for like five months and I had the best sales training you could ever get. It was hard and fast sales training, which I think was amazing. But then I got an email from my friend at Maysearch that I did the deal with for Elf. And she said, just come in for an interview. We loved working with you on this deal. Just come in for an interview. So I had a breakfast with our EVP of leasing now on the East Coast who hired me. And the breakfast was supposed to be a half hour and ended up being an hour and a half. Because once you fall into this retail real estate world, you just can't stop talking about it. So even while I was at Uber Eats, I just couldn't stop thinking about all these retailers. I'd walk on the streets of New York City and I'd be like, that person's paying $400 per square foot. That person's paying $800 per square foot. I would be fascinated and I just got right back into it. And four years later, I wouldn't change a thing. Uber Eats, I am 
so, so, so impressed. You're going to have to, alcohol may need to be involved, but I'm going to have to hear about that at some point. Um, you got it. I was one of the first 50 employees. It was very cool. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. Okay. See, that's a great question, Rob, by the way. I was going to be like, oh, it's too related to like, you know, I was going to ask you about brokerage because that's kind of another hard job. I guess if you were an intern, but was it the variety of, you know, what you kill, you eat, or was it a little gentler than that? Well, I started as an intern and then I worked for a full year. I had a really great boss who taught me so much in a year. I mean, I learned more in a year than I think a lot of people learn in five because I was her right-hand man. I attended every meeting with her. It was incredible, but it was really hard. I remember going to my dad and saying, dad, I'm eating cereal for dinner every night. I can't afford to go to dinner with my friends. And he said, Gab, when I started working, I had a Grey's papaya every single night. So <laughs> seems to me that you're doing pretty well. <laughs> I, I remember him saying to me, like, look, think about this as your MBA, right? Like, you are going to spend at least a year or two trying to get your footing, and then you'll start making the money. So you have to look at this as this is your education. And that's true. I mean, you take a tiny little draw at brokers that you have to pay back. And it's incredibly hard. And when you see the percentages that come out and everything, I mean, it's crazy. But it's the best education that you could ever get, brokerage. And the sky is the limit in brokerage, which is very cool. You don't have to wait for anyone to promote you. You don't have to wait for that raise. You have to work hard. And I love, I'm always a self-starter, so that was great for me. I'm going to say something that I don't even know if you'll publish it, but being a woman in brokerage was really hard. It was hard because there was still really old school landlords that you would call and they would just hang up the phone on you. They would hear your voice or they'd meet you and they'd be like, you're really young. It wasn't even about my gender at that point. It was about my age. And it was, brokerage was tough. No one ever spared your feelings. Look, it was the best experience I could have ever had. Will I go back? I don't know. <laughs> and by the way, it's so funny. We didn't talk about this, but when I was thinking about this conversation, it always comes up that females are underrepresented on the real estate side of the business, even in retail, although I think it's getting a lot better. And so there's always kind of those uphill battles. And I would certainly agree. I talk to all kinds of different landlords, and I think sometimes they're shocked and who's on the other end. Hopefully that's gotten better. And also just kind of funny about retail real estate and people point this out all the time, but, you know, women are really kind of the leaders as far as consumers, yet we're underrepresented on this side of it. And again, I confess every show that I'm a gold medalist shopper. So, you know, why wouldn't I know where brands should be and, and et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's interesting. But um, I will give credit to Maserich. I'm actually on a team of all women. And I think that Maysearch really does have probably one of the best divides. There feels like no difference between if you're a man or a woman. So that's, I guess, the best part about being on the landlord's side. Like, there's a culture to it. In brokerage, it's like every man for themselves. But when you're on the landlord's side and developer side, there's a culture. There's a company culture. Right. Yeah, that's amazing. By the way, I did not know that either. And I've created a little team of all women. So we'll see if I, I can keep the run going. Gabrielle, thank you so much for being on the program. It was great to have you. And uh, Rob, thanks so much for being my partner in crime. I love this conversation. Thank you so much. This has been Retail is Your Business. 
Produced by Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2020. Your brand message can be on this show. Email us to find out more at podcast at mouthmedianetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you.